You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! Yeah, and I don't know how many, uh, like, uh, Spanish-speaking listeners we have, if we have any at all. So it's like, I, should I put a clip of dialogue up front of this one? I don't think I should. doesn't really matter. So that's why there's nothing there. What the hell was that you were drinking? A beverage. <laughs> no, but what is in it? It's full of fruit. Yeah, so there's frozen peaches and strawberries that I oh. did instead of ice cubes but oh, what's yeah. the liquor the liquor okay so there's um absolute grapefruit mm-hmm. vodka and then i put raspberry sarpus and then i put ginger ale okay you put a little bit you put a little bit of ginger ale in there okay that's good <laughs> it's very tasty i know it sounds I like, like it is Sounds like I like to mix with alcohols and stuff. And plus, Absolute uh, has been a, a supporter of Pride for a very long time now. There you Before go. it was popular for manufacturers, manufacturers, big companies to put their logo on. Absolute hmm. was there. And you have a whole rainbow of colors in your uh, drink. So there you go. I also have my rainbow cup tonight, too. Mm-hmm. I don't know if one can see it, but I've been drinking <laughs> out of it all month. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so welcome. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 233. And I am your host, Lee. My mother told me to be wary of fawns, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host, Lee. You won't be the first pig I've got it, Hardy. How you doing? <laughs> that, you know what? That's actually a pretty good one, because I feel like that's something I, I would have done as well. Well, she's the biggest. <laughs> she's the biggest badass in the film, really. She is. I yeah, loved her. So we're doing Pan's Labyrinth from 2006, uh, Guillermo del Toro film. We should have an interesting conversation about this one. I think it was a nice revisit. Spoilers. I kind of like this film quite a bit. But before we get into that, we can get into what we've watched in the last little while. And I know you have something, Lee. So I will let you start. Um, it's the movie that you introduced me to. I totally no. want to talk about it. Yeah, the one that we watched on Monday. Uh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Turbo yeah. Kid. Maybe. Turbo Kid. Sorry, Turbo Kid. Waste Kids, what I'm watching later. Uh, oh. Turbo Kid. Anyways, I, I just want to put it out there that people should watch it. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's one of the ones I watched this week. And honestly, it was, like, probably one of the funnest movies I've watched in a long time. Like, it was just a ridiculous, like, there was so much violence, but it still felt mm-hmm. so, like, lighthearted. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. just, it was so good. It was so good. I, I uh, absolutely suggest all of you to go watch it. Lee introduced it to me. Fantastic movie. Go watch it. Turbo yeah. Kid, do it. 
yeah, we uh, we screened it on uh, Monday. We watched it in, in my private Discord, and we had a lot of fun. It was a nice revisit for me, and uh, I wanted to introduce something cool to Lee to watch. And so we've been we've been doing that lately, uh, doing sort of like little movie nights, little date nights. Uh, so far, we've we've done that. And but the other one we did was uh, it was Black Sunday was the one Black we did Sunday, before that. That was, was actually yeah. really cool to watch. That was just interesting to watch in general to kind of see how movies were filmed back then, like. The storyline I thought was really interesting, but mm-hmm. the actual details, the makeup, the background, the effects, all that, like it was just really interesting to watch because it was a 1960s movie and it was just done so well. Like it was visually appealing to watch. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so I've got two things I'll mention really quick here. First one I'll mention is from 1985. Uh, it's directed by one of my favorite uh, Italian directors, Enzo G. Castellari. Uh, it's not one of his best films, though. It's called Light Blast, and it stars Eric Estrada of Chips fame. And it's a movie that just goes to show you why he never had an actual movie career, that all the movies he ever made, no one's ever watched, because he's terrible in it. It's kind of a film that gives away all of its cool shit right at the beginning and then kind of gets really long and boring. It's basically a police procedural mixed with kind of sci-fi horror, because there's this mad scientist who's also as bland as um, uh, Eric Estrada is, but he's got this big laser gun that he sort of transports around and he shoots uh, targets with it and he's basically trying to hold the city ransom, basically. It's like, pay me so much money or I'll I'll shoot this place and blow it up. And it's like, it's this big it's like heat ray laser gun. The only thing really cool about this movie is the special effects. Uh, so you see the effects of the laser gun when it melts people. Like, have you ever seen the melting effect from uh, Indiana Jones, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, where the uh, I'm sure you've probably seen this scene at some point in in your life with the the Nazis face melts and like his eyeballs come out and his face melts and all that shit. It's basically that effect. (laughs) And they use it like four or five times in the movie, but it's only super effective the first time when these two teenagers sneak into this like railway car to fuck. So all the exploitation elements are like right in the front loaded in this movie in like the first 10 minutes where it's like, okay, they're going to get naked, laser hits them, melts them, great effects. And then afterwards it's all diminishing returns. And unfortunately it's just kind of gets boring. There's, there's still, there's still a couple laser kills throughout it, but it's not as good as the first 10 minutes of the film. (laughs) And oh, uh, Eric Estrada, so he plays a cop, right? And he's supposed to be this uh, cop who is, you know, he doesn't play by the rules. He plays by his own rules and shit. And, yeah. So when we're introduced to him, it's in a uh, hostage situation where these bank robbers have some people hostage. And he's supposed to be like, uh, like they make negotiations, send in food or whatever. So he's pretending to be the delivery guy. But he walks into there wearing basically nothing but a banana hammock and carrying like a cooked chicken. Sexy. And, and he's got his, yeah, and he's got his gun in the chicken. So he pulls it out, you know, and takes the guys out and shit, but it's, it's the dumbest shit. Like after, after the first 10 minutes, it's like, why bother watching the movie after that? But um, yeah, the second one I'll mention, and this is way better. And this is one we'll probably end up doing on the podcast at some point. Spoilers. <laughs> mm. This is Framed from 1975. Uh, it's by Phil Carlson. It was his last film. Uh, he, he was sort of a genre director who did like a lot of film noir and stuff like that back in the 50s and 60s. Like he, he, and he, he, just, he just did a lot of like really good solid films. The film he did before this was Walking Tall. 
which is a pretty famous uh, 70s uh, sort of exploitation film. And it's starring the same person that's starring in this one, uh, Joe Don Baker. And he just plays this uh, sort of reckless, easygoing nightclub owner who's also like a degenerate gambler, right? So he, he wins some money and he's coming home uh, with this big score that he won. And he is a witness to a shooting. And then things spiral from there. Basically, uh, someone notices that he witnessed the shooting. So they're out to get him. Uh, a cop is paid to, uh, to try to take him in. And he ends up having to kill the cop in self-defense. So he goes to prison for four years. And so they do a mini little prison movie in this film. I don't know, like a stretch of 20, 30 minutes maybe in the film. It's the fastest prison movie i've ever seen and it's done really really well it just it just flows so well everything you need to see everything you need to know and in prison he befriends uh, this mob boss and this hitman and so when he gets out of prison he basically uses his connections to them to help him with his revenge and find out who like who set him up and who put him in prison and all this other shit right That's and cool. it yeah and it becomes a revenge film it's got a really great stunt with a train that i'm not going to spoil because like i said yeah, we'll probably, <laughs> yeah i will i will not spoil it it's got one of the best lines i've ever seen like a a hero say to a villain in a film uh again another thing i'm not going to spoil i'm just going to say it's really enjoyable you know it's it's not a super great movie or anything like that but it's highly enjoyable it's a good fun watch and uh yeah i'll leave it at that for now um sounds exciting mm -hmm. i'm actually that would be a fun watch for sure if you like walking tall uh if you like like macon county line uh, for you people out there listening, like if you, if you like the exploitation neo-noir films from the 1970s, uh, this fits like right in there into that genre really well. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play a little bit of music, some podcast promos, and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about Pan's Labyrinth. You ungodly warlock. <laughs> There's this show called Movie Melt, and you probably know about it. Uh, and it's once every two... I have no idea how often this is uploaded. <laughs> and it's a show where a bunch of compañeros get together, and we play some fun games, trivia mainly. Uh, we talk about new releases. Uh, we have some fun games where we try and guess the title of a movie based on stuff that really probably religious people write on IMDb. <laughs> Yeah, it takes about 20 hours to record. There's always a failure midway through. Uh, and then the highlight of the week of the, of the show is uh, reviewing a movie. Usually it's kind of a interesting, lesser known cult type movie. And it's uh, quite enjoyable. It sounds good in theory, yes. <laughs> I might have a listen one day. Wow. You ungodly warlock.
All right, we got Pan's Labyrinth from 2006, and I got a trailer here. Might as well play it. It's actually in English, so uh, you might actually glean something from it there, people who have not seen the movie yet. So there we go. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs Mark her return. There will be secrets that reveal her destiny. There will be a journey that will make you believe. Slightly more effective. You can actually see what's going on in the trailer, but you know. Even if you hear it, though, like I, I think it was. You can hear all the squishy noises anyway. But even the music was incredible. Mm-hmm. The, the script, I think, it was good. It was uh, definitely. If I heard that on radio, I'd be like, "Oh, this sounds interesting." Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, *Pan's Labyrinth* for two thousand six, uh, written and directed by Guillermo del Toro. Have you ever seen any of his other movies? Maybe. Oh. <laughs> really bad maybe, at maybe maybe uh Mimic, Hellboy one and two. I've seen Hellboy, yes. Yeah. Uh Pacific Rim. Blind it now so I can Oh, The Shape of Water. Yes, I saw the that. Shape of Water, yeah. That was such a good movie. Okay, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh I think most people know who he is. Uh, he's been a major creative force in genre filmmaking in the last like thirty years now, I'd say. But uh, you know, He's one of my favorite filmmakers, and also I just really like that he, you know, he produces a lot of his friends' stuff, and like he, he especially is like into uh, Spanish, Latino, etc. Voices in cinema, like trying to forward uh, that's that sort of section of uh, cinema into the world that didn't have as much representation uh, back in the day. So, 
and I'm still hoping that one day he'll get to make his uh, At the Mountains of Madness H.P. Uh, Lovecraft adaptation, which has been kind of like a rumored project and then a dead project. And uh, I, I don't see why he can't make it at some point. You know, he's I think he's got all the money. He, he, could, he could probably do it, but he just needs like probably some people to back him. But uh, whatever. Um, anyway. So this is going to be fun, me trying to pronounce all these names. So Ivana Bar- Barcaro as Ophelia, Sergey Lopez as Vidal, Maribel Verdu as Mercedes, and I actually know her from a, she's got a part in YouTube Mamba Tambien. I, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but it's the, uh, it's a it's a sexy movie. It's, it's about these uh, two uh, young dudes who like hook up with this older woman and they go on like a road trip and like fuck a lot and you know, sort of like a coming of age thing. Doug Jones as uh, the fawn and as also the pale man in this. Ariadina Gill as Carmen. Uh, Alex Angelo as Dr. Ferrero. Menolo Solo as Garcis. Uh, Cesar Vera as Serrano. Roger Casamajor as Pedro. And Ivan Masagui as El Tarta. And I was going to like look into some more of these people's backgrounds and stuff, but it's like, they've all just done stuff I've never heard of. Like it is, it's mostly, you know, we've done a million movies in Spain mm-hmm. or Mexico or someplace like that. And you've never heard of us uh, outside of that. And uh, it sucks actually, because uh, a lot of good actors in this and hopefully I'll get into some of their filmographies at some point. Uh, we have a synopsis here from Claudio Carvalho on IMDb. In 1944, in the post-Civil War in uh, in Spain, rebels still fight in the mountains against the uh, flagellist troops. A young and imaginative Ophelia travels with her pregnant and sick mother, Carmen Vidal, to the country to meet and live with her stepfather, the sadistic and cruel Captain Vidal, in an old mill. During the night, Ophelia meets a fairy, and together they go to a pit in the center of the maze where they met a fawn that tells her that she is a princess from a kingdom in the underground. He also tells her that her father is waiting for her, but she needs to accomplish three gruesome, tough, and dangerous assignments first. Meanwhile, she becomes a friend of servant Mercedes, who is the sister of one of the rebels and actually is giving support to the group. In a dark, harsh, and violent world, Ophelia lives her magical uh, world trying to survive her tasks and see her father and king again. Okay, it's weirdly worded, but kind of the gist. A girl who is, you know, she's got the... We'll we'll get into whether it's real or not, but, uh, you know... Uh, she's got these this over-imaginative uh, mind, and she starts seeing fairies and things like that. And she's either on a task to uh, ascend her rightful place as a fairy princess, or she's, you know, just delusional, one or the other. But either way, it's, it's sort of paired up beside this story of uh, resistance fighters uh, fighting fascists in Spain, basically, is, is what's going on. So, yeah, I mean, we'll just get into it here. So what are your sort of general uh, thoughts on this one, Lee? This was a beautiful movie. Like, visually, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. The music, I thought, was really good. The The visual effects were amazing. Like, it was just, it was captivating just watching it. Like, if I, I didn't really understand. Like, if I walked into the middle of it, I'd sit down and watch it because just the visual appeal was so, uh, like, absolutely phenomenal. Is this a uh, this for, for first, first time watch for you, too, or...? It's on a first time watch. Um, first time I watched it, I think I was nineteen. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, 
I was 19. I watched it with my ex, and that ex was a very bad, not good person with bad days. Mm. So I shouldn't say with bad days. He like some of the stuff was good, but he started watching it and he was telling me like how dumb of a movie it was. So I had that idea in my head how dumb of a movie it was. Uh, so I'm really glad that I rewatched it now because seriously, like I loved it. It was. It was a, a fairy tale being told to you. Like, it was just mm-hmm. so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good movie. It's very, it's actually pretty obvious that, like, it is presented as a fairy tale, regardless of whether, you know, you believe Ophelia is actually encountering this stuff that she seems to be encountering in the film. It starts out with. Uh, like, you know, a fairy tale opening and it gives you a fairy tale ending as well, you know, as far as like narration goes. But I, yeah, I think this is a great film. Uh, it, like you said, it's very beautiful to look at. It's thematically very well done too, I think. We'll get into it, but just what Del Toro chooses for his uh, his color schemes for different characters and mm-hmm. where they're where they are in the film and uh, what happens to them and what they have to do in the film. It all comes together, I think, really, really well. And it's also just a really brutal, horrific film, too. Like, it's very, very sad. It skirts horror. Like, it's it's mostly a fantasy fairy tale film, and a lot of Del Toro stuff kind of sort of touches more on in that sort of uh, mold. But there's definitely some, like, really horrific elements to it as well. And death scenes. Ugh. Mm-hmm. like, yeah, the like, especially it's the it's the war stuff that's more horrific, right? Like it's yeah. that stuff there is, you know, put side by side with the uh, the fairy world stuff. And while there are there are elements of the the sort of fairy world thing that is, you know, uncomfortable and, and icky and gross, you know, it's, it's just Del Toro putting his kind of the things that both bother and interest him the most. Like he, he really likes the stuff that he's kind of grossed out and, and scared of. And he likes putting it in his films a lot. So you're going to see like images of bugs, especially bugs. Like he's got a real big thing with like insects and bugs and stuff. So you see a lot of that in this film, this captain Vidal guy who is just a total fascist piece of shit. Awful fucking sociopath. Uh, you know, he's killing people left and right like killing uh, innocent people, killing people that he suspects are rebels, whatever. It doesn't matter to him, but yeah, the death scenes are so cold and like quick too. Like it's, it's just, it's not like Hollywood deaths where you shoot a guy and he's staggering around for five minutes afterwards, or, you know, he has like last words or something like that. It's like death is like just really brutal and swift. And then this guy is just dishing that shit out the entire film. One thing that I, I like uh, right from the start, this this film like teases you from the get go with cool imagery. It's only like you're only a couple minutes in and Ophelia and her mother are um, out of the car. They're traveling to meet the uh, the captain and and she instantly like finds a piece of a ancient like pagan statue and she puts it in the, in the statue and then she's like, Oh shit. And then she encounters like this stick bug that isn't quite a stick bug. It's weird. It, it's not pre- behaving like a, a stick bug would or a walking stick or whatever the fuck they're called. And it's, it's instantly like giving you visuals of the, the sort of fantasy elements. Like they're immediately 
coming in. So, you know, if you're, if you're arguing from the stance that this is all in her head and she's just imagining a lot of this stuff, then you can just kind of say like, well, this is just, you know, showing her she's, she's constantly thinking of this stuff, but uh, I, I don't, I don't really side with that argument. I'm like, okay, this is all actually happening. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm totally fine with like, this is all actually happening. So she's, she says probably she's so much more open to the stuff that she's seeing it where, where everyone else is passing it by kind of thing is, is what I'm kind of thinking. Open to see it. Yeah. Like she's connected to that world. Like I, I totally accept that. Yes. She's actually the reincarnation of this uh, fairy princess that like left the, the fairy realm to walk among humans and died in our world and was just like reincarnated. And she's like faded to, go back home at some point. So it's just, there, there's kind of a predestination kind of thing here with her, where she's going to bump up against the fairy world and she's going to see it where people like Captain Vidal will never see it. Uh, like even at the end, he doesn't see the fawn, yeah. right? In, in the a, labyrinth. It's an interesting take on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I'm still on the fence. I don't know what I want to believe. Part of me wants to believe that she did see it and there was a thing. And the other part of me believes that uh, it's just she was in so much pain and mm-hmm. uh, she was trying to escape the world that she created an old, her own world. And people do do that when they are suffering uh, really badly. They will create like their own world, their own fantasy world that they believe in. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I was seeing. Like I was just, again, I, I I'm on the fence. Like part of me is like, Nope, this is totally real. She's a part of this like fantasy world. And the other part of me is like, no, she created this world. Cause, uh, the world was such a shitty place. She believed in something more beautiful. Like she just wanted to believe so bad. There was just something more beautiful. Uh, the ending when the father and the mother were there, mm-hmm. the mother being there after she died. And then the, brother was there as well so that's the only thing that really took me away because i was like isn't the brother alive like he's with mercedes but yeah it's uh it's 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 a open to interpretation movie Mm -hmm. because tells us and that's kind of what i enjoy so either you can be the person who says like completely cold-hearted and be like no she was crazy uh she made it all up it wasn't real or you can be another person who actually believes in the fantasy. Uh, so it's kind of that awesome interpretation that you can take both ways. So you can either believe or not believe. And that was cool because there was ways of arguing both. Yeah. And, and the thing I like about that is like both sides of that are equally as interesting too, because thematically it's still the, the thing she goes through, even if it's in her mind, they still connect to what like all the other people are going through in this film. So Franco Spain, fascist Spain, Franco remained in power after World War II so, and ran a, a fascist regime for decades until he died. And Spain became it became better. I won't quite say it became a total democracy, but it became better like pretty much right after he died. And then it took quite a while to get a bit more, you know, modern and a bit more like an actual democracy and such. But, but, uh, point is the rebels didn't win. So, and they don't win in this movie really, but you know, they're, they're not, they're not fated to win a lot of the rebel, like all the, all the major like resistance characters in this film pretty much die. Right. So, so like, you know, Ophelia, she either dies or she transcends to the fairy world, whichever, which, you want to believe her mother dies, Captain Vidal dies, a bunch of the the initial group of rebels, they all die. 
doctor. Uh, the doctor dies. So sad. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, but it, the point is that it's their moral courage against fascism that really matters. Like it, it's the it's the uh, courageous disobedience rather than blind obedience that's like the true virtue of this film. And Ophelia does the same thing. In her entire sort of trek through this is her basically breaking rules. But she's breaking rules for a good cause in her mind, at the very least. Um, at the very end, even though, you know, she's she's on the outs with the fawn there after the, uh, the second task. <laughs> uh, the fact that she chooses to save her brother instead of uh, draw his blood to open the portal actually gets her into the fairy world you know she actually succeeds like she does the right thing despite the fact that she was she was told you know don't disobey me no matter what but she decides to disobey the font anyway and she's like no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hurt my brother and i'll give up everything that was promised to me because it's the moral right thing to do so those two stories are like going side by side kind of thing. Yeah. With Ophelia. It's like the reality of what's mm. going on in the real life. And then what Ophelia is doing in uh, the, the fantasy world. Mm-hmm. So like the first task was her uh, getting the frog. From the, the <laughs> from the vagina tree. From the vagina tree. But it's kind of showing how one person has all the resources and because they're taking all the resources, it's killing this tree. Mm-hmm. And the tree is dying because it can't get the... Like, it can't get the nutrition because the, the, the frog is, like, killing everything under it. Yeah. So she's killing the frog, which is technically a bad thing. But realistically, she's killing a frog to save this tree which gives nourishment to people. So by killing the one, it's helping something be able to help many. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of her first task. And you see that at the beginning when they first get there, or they're talking about the the portions. Uh, They have like the the Mm -hmm. whatever cards, the... Ration cards. Ration cards, yeah. Yeah. So they have the ration cards. And it just shows this guy has it all. And he's hoarding it all. Mm -hmm. And had you just got rid of him and this whole thing, you could actually spread the wealth to everybody and help everybody. So yeah. I thought that visual, like just that, that sense of what she's doing is representation in this movie too. And then her, when she's going against that creepy hand guy, mm-hmm. hand yeah, the pale guy, man. Yeah. All she had to do was a simple task, but then it said, don't eat anything. And there's this whole thing of delicious, fresh foods and everything right in front of her. So she goes and does her task and then she tries, like she ends up taking stuff anyway, which causes destruction. Like the two fairies or fairies die and she almost gets caught. Mm -hmm. So you can just see that's one of those things with the doctor, with the medicine how he's like, I need to do something good, and uh, I'm not supposed to do this, even though I know it's good, but, oh no, I did something, and I got caught doing it, and now I'm dead. So it's just, just the, all the stories, like, everything could kind of compare to what happened in the movie, and what happened, or sorry, what happened in real life, and what happened to the fantasy world. Mm-hmm. So just examples of all of that, and just comparisons, I thought was really cool. Yeah, I want to get into the the pale man thing here i thought it was pretty interesting so i was watching this and I, I did read a little bit on this and some of this kind of jumped out at me the movie is you know even though it presents this sort of fantasy stuff on on the front of it it is basically about resisting fascism like that that's kind of that's kind of like the the big message in this is 
It's a, it's a very anti-fascist film. The Pale Man kind of represents the Holocaust in a way. So he's in this extra-dimensional place that she has to like put a chalk outline and open a door into another dimension, basically, to, to go and, and find his place. And so he's got this almost church-looking uh, domain. Like, it's, it's very churchy colors, but all the murals are of him eating children. Like, you know... It, it's 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 kind of like oh Ophelia, didn't you notice all the children being eaten on the walls? You, you, maybe you should like listen to what the fawn was saying. Although at the same time, like, yeah. Although the, <laughs> although at the same time, you can't really blame her because she was she's probably never had a grape in her life. Like like this is this is fascist Spain. People were starving, and unless you were like super privileged, you weren't getting much of anything for food. Yeah, so fresh she, fruit was there right in front of her. Mm-hmm. She's probably like never had that in her life. So that would be like the sweetest candy to her. But you, you will notice the pile of children's shoes, right? Mm-hmm. That is directly just overt imagery of Nazi death camps where there was, you know, like piled shoes of the people they put to death in, in, in death camps, like just sitting there, like it very much reflections of that. And uh, I mean, also just just the the monsters that uh, del Toro comes up with. Like, I really do appreciate that. Although, you know, these are fairies and stuff. They're not presented in the sort of sanitized uh, version that we see these days of like, you know, fairies and gnomes and things like that. Like the the more commercial sanitized versions of these are, you know, kind of more human, more friendly. Like he, he decidedly tries to make them very less human. He it's, makes them alien. Like it's kind of cool. Cause I think the concept was, uh, this creature could have been an actual bug, mm-hmm. uh, that was trying to help her, but because she wanted that to be a fairy, cause she, in her mind believed so badly it was a fairy that mm-hmm. this a bug did transform in order to keep her, like make her uh, more comfortable, like appeal to her vision, which right. could also be on the arguing side that she was creating this world. Cause when she saw this, she created the fairy because it was what she wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the pale man could also just be like in her mind, like a substitution for Vidal in a way too. Cause you know, yeah. he, he's just sitting at his table, hoarding all the resources. And if he catches you all of a sudden, he's coming for you kind of thing. That, yeah. Like she's, she's just like when uh, we first have the interaction between Ophelia and the captain, like right from the get go, it's the mm-hmm. most negative thing ever. Cause the poor girl comes out after a long fucking drive, her books in her hand. And she's like, he's like, Oh, Ophelia, like not even anything like nice to meet you. Anything not trying to mm-hmm. be nice. She just puts a hand out and he just grabs her hand. And he's like, that's the wrong hand. Like not, hey, let me try to grab your book so we could shake with the right hand. Or hey, let's just do this because I'm trying to help you. Or fuck, yeah. not handshake and do something else because she's a fucking child and you're supposed to be your stepfather. Yeah. And I mean, he, well, he, he obviously doesn't, he doesn't think anything of women. They're just toys to him. Oh. Like just he all oh, he wants a son, right? Like he that's that's his de- he desperately wants a son. I wanted him to have a female so bad because there was when the doctor said, "Oh yeah, the doctor, yeah. yeah, the doctor. How, how do you know? How do you know it's a you know how do you, how do you know it's going to be a boy?" And he's like, "Don't you fuck with me?" Like, like I could, I just wanted it to be a daughter just to see, but I understand why they made it the son because they made the, mm. the story go better. Uh, the captain made his first of all the guy who plays the captain excellent 
Mm-hmm. I hated him. Oh yeah, <laughs> like, he's, every he's... fire of my fiber of my being hated him, and the actor who portrayed him did such a fucking good job. Mm-hmm. Like, if yeah, you can make me hate the character. It's like my blood boil when I see you. Then you acted really goddamn good because that was just out of this world. Like I, oh, he's <laughs> an absolute, comments. he's an absolute piece of shit. So it's interesting the way he's presented, right? Because he's just incredibly heartless. Like he he's surrounded by clockwork things. Like like they set up their base in this old mill, right? So he he sets up his main room in the mechanism for the mill. And so there's like big clockwork cogs and stuff behind him and old dead machinery. It's dirty and cold. It's very much like here is the modern world of sharp angles and harshness and efficiency. Everything he does, he's always looking at his watch, you know, uh, to, he has broken watch to check the time and stuff like everything. Even at the beginning there, he's like checks his watch. Oh, uh, 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 Ophelia's mother and Ophelia, they're 15 minutes late getting here kind of thing. You know, like he, he's always checking that shit. He's always presented in like gray tones, sometimes like red and orange tones, stuff like that. Whereas, you know, opposed to Ophelia, who is always presented in tones of like green and blue and brown, vivid nature and much more like old world kind of purity kind of thing, like round and curved. Like there's no, whenever she's in a space, there's no harsh angles around her. It's always big, open, like forest angles and gnarled roots and and stuff like that. Um, So like, there's a good contrast between, between like the modern world and this older pagan world kind of thing, like sort of juxtaposed together. I said that we're totally wrong. Um, (laughs) Juxtaposed together. And uh, thank you. And you did a lot in my class right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, this, this movie just does it so blatantly, but so well, you don't care. It's so in your face, but at the same time, it's just like Del Toro is such a master of weaving these things together. And I mean, you know, and it also just helps that you have like a great fucking cast pulling this shit off. So good. Without a hitch. Uh, I think they, like the way they directed it, the way they represented the characters, the first thing that you see, like how you mentioned the whole clockwork, the hard edges, all that kind of stuff, right from the get go when he said they're 15 minutes late. And when they, she comes, the mother comes out and the wheelchair comes out and she mm-hmm. doesn't want to. And he's like, do it for me. Straight up. There's no trying to understand why she doesn't want to. There's no trying to understand her comfortability or anything like that. It's straight up. You're going to do as I say. Mm-hmm. You're going to obey me. And then he always does that with the doctor, too. Like, you need to obey me. Say with Mercedes. Like, it's all this kind of, you have to listen to me. You have to do what I say. And you could see it's just very, you go by the rules. You go by what I say. There's no empathy or sympathy or anything. That's just, I do it because that's what I need to do. Mm. It's uh, also, it's also just, it's, it's all about how he looks too to everybody else. Her, the way Ophelia's mother presents herself is a reflection of him. So she has to present herself in a way that reflects, you know, his, his total authority. He, he always has to be the one in charge. So uh, the the fact that she's being to, being wheeled to the compound in a wheelchair instead of walking on her own reflects on him, you know. Control. Exactly, yeah. It made me angry. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Oh, no. He's a fucking bastard. He really is. And uh, Del Toro recognizes what a fucking bastard he is. And he gives us, by the end of it, he gives us a really nice, cathartic. This guy oh, goes through yes. the fucking ringer. Like, he just gets beaten and stabbed and chewed up. By a female. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what made it better, because this whole movie, it shows a disrespect towards females. Like, with Ophelia, his hate for Ophelia, his uh, his care less for the servers, or server mm-hmm. Mercedes, uh, his now, like, literally does not care about his wife. The wife, someone asked how they met. The wife tells this romantic story, and he's like, oh, she's new here. She doesn't understand that these stories are just waste of time. And when the baby was coming, the first thing he says to the doctor, if you have to choose between my wife and the do- my child, mm-hmm. the child lives. Yeah. And, oh, God, this is like a whole other thing with like the whole women's right and the abortion thing. That was another one of those moments. I was like, oh, I see that slide in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just how you could see this hate for females. You just see his just hard, hard hate for females. And then fucking Mercedes comes in like beautiful. And it's so cool. Cause there was that familiar image, right? The knife that kept coming, mm-hmm. you kept seeing it and you kept like, you're like, okay, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. So as soon as you did and the knife comes out, you're like, Oh yeah, bitch. I forgot yeah. about that. Although, you know, like she she can't kill him with it because it's such it's basically such a like a small paring knife, basically, is what she's yeah. using. But but she she fucks him up. Um oh, but yeah. Vicious. Mm-hmm. But yeah, female females are just like a necessary evil to him, you feel like. Yeah. Gotta tolerate them because you know they they do the chores and they bear the babies and they'll bear me a son. That's all he cares about as far as that that's concerned. But yeah, but yeah, Mercedes, you know, she thinks so lowly of herself mm-hmm. in this film. Like she thinks she's a coward when actually she's one of the bravest people in the film. Where she is always walking the edge to try to help the the gorillas in the woods and most likely get caught. Mm-hmm. And and she and she's just like doing her damnedest to keep it together, and then she finally gets that moment where she she gets to get loose and just chop the fuck out of him, gives him like half a Glasgow smile, uh, chopping his his fucking cheek in half. Um, yeah, just the stabbing, like when she stabbed him in the back, and then she stabbed like tried to stab him in the heart, which obviously she couldn't reach because it's too short. Mm-hmm. And drags the knife. So it's on yep. a stab. You know how you usually see those movies where the women stab? They stab and they're like, oh, oh my God, and back away. This was like, no, she has the tiniest fucking knife, stabs him in the back, stabs him in the heart, and like rips it. And then she's like, don't fucking touch the child, and rips his fucking face open. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. And she just casually walks out, like, okay, guys. Just going. Yeah, she, she tries her best to walk casually out of there. They, 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 the dumb fascists eventually catch on. It's like, wow, he let her out of there pretty quick. Maybe we should check on that. And he comes running out with his fucking lip split open. Is like, catch her. And he, then he, then you have that scene where he has to sew himself back up. It's interesting. Like, you know, he starts out, he just looks like a normal, like, you know, fairly handsome dude or whatever. But as the movie progresses, his sort of malevolence and evil actually you know starts showing on his face and stuff like he, he you know he's wounded and he's bleeding and he just looks like a fucking monster instead of like just having the inner sort of like hidden monster uh he's just like full monster on display by the end of the thing kind of 
idea. So we, we've mentioned before, but the, the, the creature designs are great. Um, so the big one here, though, is the fawn. And that's like the biggest practical effect in this. Like there, there is some CGI. Some of it's a little, it's a little 2006 at this yeah. point, you know, some yeah. of it, but I think it all holds together. Older. Yeah. It still holds together really well. Um, but the font is like all practical. Like the only CGI that I think is implemented in that. And also the pale man is just to like erase, you know, Doug Jones's legs because uh, in both characters, you know, like he can't, he can't bend his legs like a fawn. So, you know, th- that's obviously like prosthetic and his legs are like behind them kind of thing. <laughs> and the, um, the pale man, his, his legs rail thin. They're fucking, you know, so those are, those are obvious CGI sort of enhancements. So that, and I really like that. Like if, if you use CGI to like take away the wires, basically I'm cool with that. That's fine. But the the fawn, I really like just how old he looks. When we first see him, he's got gray hair. He's gnarled. It feels like he's been entrenched in the earth for a long, long time, waiting for Ophelia to show up kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And as the film goes along and as Ophelia completes her tasks, he gets a bit younger, more mobile, because when he first starts... He's walking around like I walk around when I get up in the morning, all <laughs> crippled and, 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 you know, all Old crippled and, and all crippled and 43 years old, you know, like, um, and he has, he has this weird shake too, right? Every once in a while, like one of his limbs will start going, he's old. He's, he's maybe sick or something like that. Maybe he's got like uh fawn Parkinson's or something like that going on. Like who, who knows, who knows what the fuck's going on. But as his, you know, as he's completing his tasks and stuff, he seems to be like coming more to life. And I like that he's presented throughout the film. Like you're kind of wondering if he's trustworthy or not, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he's not presented as this warm, loving character. Even when he hugs Ophelia at one point, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> the last, especially at the end, that was a big one for me because especially at the end when it's the mother's dead. Mm-hmm. And the stepfather is discovered as the worst, worst, terrible human. And all this shit happens. And uh, Mercedes is caught at that point. Mm-hmm. And she sees him again. And he says, okay, we're going to give you one more chance. Like, we're just going to give you one more chance. And then he says, you have to listen to me. No questions asked. Yep. Which kind of gives you the whole captain vibe of you're going to obey me. And when mm-hmm. I know when the doctor said, well, I don't always agree. It's like, okay, but you have to obey me. This is kind of what it reminded me of. I thought it was almost like a foreshadow to say that the fawn was going to be bad because the captain and the fawn had very similar uh, traits at that point in time mm-hmm. and a very like obedient, like, listen to me. You're going to do what I say. You're going to not ask questions like that kind of stuff turned out to be different. But I did think at that moment, I thought it was a comparison because it was so close during such a tragic moment that had just happened. Yeah, that was, you know, that was the um, that was the connection. Like that was, you know, where both storylines were thematically the same. The, the, the sort of central to pass the test, prove your virtue. You have to question. You have to use disobedience in the face of, you know, uh, a demand that, you know, is not morally right. And and the fawn is, you know, the fawn is putting up a false uh, pretense there. He, he's, he's basically like, you you, ha- you need to obey me, 
But really, it's it's just his test. Is all along he wanted Ophelia to disobey him and like spare her brother, and and that proved that you know she was pure and that she was innocent. she yeah an innocent and deserved to you know go back to the fairy world and and sit on her throne basically. And you know even if you don't accept that side of the thing, the fantasy thing, that still is a reflection of people like the Doctor and Mercedes and then the rebels. They're, they're going with their convictions or disobeying this new order that has taken over Spain. They're questioning and, and they're fighting. Yeah, and, what they said they're supposed to do is what they are against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I man. We're on a lot I mean, of movies, just saying right now. Yeah. They're, We're on they're, a lot of they're, <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the film that we could go deeper in. I, uh, again, Daniel couldn't join this week. He, he got busy with shit. I was like, I was kind of open he'd join in with this one because he'd have you know some thoughts more on like the sort of the deeper sort of like uh, political stuff as far as fascism and shit goes. But I think we, I think we you know rooted out some of it at the very least. I think it's really interesting that we listened to we watched the act of killing and now we're on this movie. Mm-hmm. Just because there's a lot. Well, I know for the act of killing, it was more they did it because they were told to do it, and now we get to watch like the people who don't do it because they're told mm-hmm. to do it. So you're on a trend right now. With me. Mind yeah. you, it's my fault. <laughs> it's my fault. I I will take full blame for it. <laughs> yeah, this is another one for uh, Lee's uh, film class. So uh, we figured, you oh, know, blame we myself. Well, yeah, yeah, blame blame that guy. Um, <laughs> It's been but, quite the journey for movies. Holy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, this is this is a podcast that's jumped around a lot in its in its history and I think we've probably jumped around even more than than usual in the last few months, but uh it's The it's last been fun. 3, the last mm-hmm. 3 alone, we went from documentary like horror that I ain't seen to last week which was the happiest like happy go lucky movie musical mm-hmm. thing of happiness to really it was like a beautiful tragedy so it was like a dark movie that had like it's really nice points it was like actually beautiful to watch yeah. and the storyline was very satisfying like at the end it was mm-hmm. very satisfying so yeah that kind of helps out but it still gives you that anger of like politics and stuff yeah <laughs> so we're taking everybody on quite the journey yeah and uh so we'll go to a little bit of trivia here. So the English subtitles that you read on the film, I, I guess, you know, if you're watching, if the official like releases and stuff, they're actually written by Guillermo del Toro himself. Because, really? Yeah, because he doesn't trust translators translating his films because he's encountered problems Ooh. with them before. Okay, so. this is the point. Um, I took a French translation class mm-hmm. and... Uh, the teacher was talking about translating movies and art and music and all that kind of stuff and how a lot of the times the whole translation is there it's right it makes sense but the whole magic of it like the whole uh, purpose of it the whole anything like the art behind it is Mm -hmm. gone so like Harry Potter was one of those different cool ones to translate because a lot of times the wordplay and the combinations of stuff was to make this like magical world and they were play on words. So you had to try and translate a way in order for it to be a play on words in French to have a similar sense. 
Mm -hmm. So I can see where he's going with this because he has an image and he doesn't want this image to get lost in translation. He wants people to get what he says and he wants to get that magical, beautiful fantasy world in a proper way that it's not lost by a translator who doesn't get the sense of his movie. If you just take a movie script and you put it in Google Translate, you're going to get weirdness. You're going to lose context. Some of it's just not going to it's it's not going to happen. It's, it's, it's just not going to like it's just not going to jive. It's not going to work. Some of my Criterion collection releases of like Japanese films, like they'll, they'll say, oh, new Criterion release. This is the new translation of the original Japanese that makes it a better context for an English you know, audience to read and and get and uh, paraphrase and, and and make it a, a bit easier to understand kind of thing. So you know, kudos to him for doing that. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Um, so this was proposed as the middle film in a trilogy about the Spanish Civil War. War. This was uh, a sequel in, in 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 a certain way to his film, The Devil's Backbone, from uh, two thousand one, which is a ghost story, and. He hasn't done the third film like he, he's kind of hinted that he's got a third film somewhere in the in the works for this, but he is just hasn't made it yet. Although two of the soldiers that appear as uh, gorillas in this are uh, the same actors who are the two main characters in the devil's backbone. And he basically all but says that, yeah, those are those characters grown up and they end up dying in the you know, after the civil war, but they like grew up in the Spanish civil war in an orphanage kind of thing and had their like movie of the ghost story and shit, which is a really good movie by the way. And, but then they just kind of like, they just kind of die as like extras in this film sort of thing. Yeah. Um, he del Toro conceived the pale man as allusion to the perverted image of stigmata Ghastly wounds are supposed to signify grace and piety. The pale man's eyes are on his hands. And this is a feature shared by the Japanese mythological monster, the uh, Taomi, which means eyes and hands. So he, he gets sort of his visuals for this from the, uh, the Japanese monster. But uh, at the same time, he's got this, you know, uh, little like lapsed Catholic kind of thing going on with stigmata and, and shit like that. Uh, you know, that sort of shit runs through a lot of his films. Um, and finally here, although audience has, uh, have interpreted the film's bittersweet ending as everything from a religious metaphor to uh, a psychological al- allegory, Guillermo del Toro offers a simpler, but more poetic explanation. I always think of that beautiful quote by Soren Kierkegaard that says the tyrant's reign ends with his death, but the martyr's reign starts with his death. I think that is the essence of the movie. It's about living forever by choosing how you die. That's kind of interesting. That makes me think. um, So Captain Vidal was big on like how he was perceived. And at the end, you know, he's like, he hands his son over to the rebels and he's like, you know, tell him when I died and who I was and shit. And, and Mercedes is like, he's never going to know your name. He's never going to know who the fuck you are. You're dead. And then he gets shot right in the face and his eyeball rolls up in his head, which is, yeah. Fuck you, bitch. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So budget for this was 19 million. It got a box office of 83.9 million. So did pretty good for itself. Yeah, it did. Yeah, and releases. This is another one where you can find it every fucking where. Just like Singing in the Rain. You 
there are 4K Blu-ray releases. There's several of those, which is saying something. Uh, there's upwards of 30 just standalone Blu-ray releases and releases in sort of like collections and stuff. It's on iTunes, Google Play, Microsoft Store, Fandango Now, Amazon Prime, Vudu, Movies Anywhere. And there's also like 26 or 7 DVD releases of it, too. So if you can't find this film, you ain't looking. That's <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I don't know what we're doing next time. Uh, I'll I'll figure something out, but uh, yeah. I never. I always have to prepare myself to be like, "What movie am I doing next week?" But this week has been hectic for me, so I haven't even thought to look. Mm-hmm. I've just been stealing all your conversation pieces and be like, oh, "I'm just going to write this in my homework." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I got I got some like guest spots to figure out probably sometime soon this summer. So figure something out. Well, who knows? We always do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, you got anything you need to plug uh, this week or? I, I don't. <laughs> okay. That's cool. Uh, that, oh, that actually, makes... no, I'm going to be on um, Gary's podcast. We're doing it recording next week. So. Oh, okay. Cinema beef. Yeah. So, yeah. If you guys want to go check out that episode, it'll be out at some point <laughs> yeah I, I don't know when next week i don't know when gary's going to release that though that'll be interesting um what, do, what are you doing on uh, cinema beef uh we're doing return to oz and the whiz kid ah okay the whiz kid or the whiz oh the whiz, the oh, whiz. I'm, I'm, I'm turbo kid and the whiz <laughs> <laughs> my own movie oh i'm terrible at that like mm. well yeah I don't know why you have me on here. I don't know. Um, but yeah, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find uh, all of our links to, you know, Apple Podcasts, uh, YouTube, Facebook, join the Facebook group. Best way, again, contact with us, yada, yada, yada. You'll hear it again at the end spiel. Uh, but until next time, we'll see you guys. Uh, you, I mean, if you're on the Facebook, you'll you'll find out what's coming up next week. I, di- I didn't tell anyone what was coming up for this episode because I, I just got <laughs> too busy. Dare you? Uh, th- it'll be a pleasant surprise for them. Pan's Labyrinth. That's that's the episode they've been waiting for from us. Is is Pan's Labyrinth? But you're supposed to warn them. Mm. It's Bad fine. Boy. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, thank you, Lee. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Esta canción, mi nena, ella es la hora del amor. La luna nos aguarda con el ruiseñor en los jardines de Granada, cerca del darro y del genil, entre magnolias escondido en un palacio para ti. Allí los besos son más dulces, allí podrá rivalizar el suave aliento de tu boca.
con el clavel y el azahar Yo entre rumores que son las notas de un cantar Yo veré en tus ojos la profundidad del mar En los jardines de Granada del darro y del feliz allí te espero en el palacio edificado para ti mira como todo callar escuchando mi canción descansa tú la frente en mi corazón Jardines de Granada, cerca del darro y del genil, allí te espero en el palacio, edificado para ti. Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For further episodes, our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. Drive through.